The things that you can do are really cool. If you look at the cryptography research that's coming out here and all this stuff, just succinct proofs in general, even statement recursive proofs, research in cryptography like FHE is fully holomorphic encryption. I'm just happy that blockchain space is spearheading a lot of innovation, especially in the zero knowledge space. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. MEV Protocol. Maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH exclusively on MEV.io and Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to mantis.app. That's M-A-N-T-I-S dot A-double-P. And Fastlane Labs, the only MEV and intent-centric team that has a daily deodorant application rate of over 68%. DM, DM, everyone. My name is Degarchi, your host from Scraping Bits, and today I have a special guest from Trailer Bits, Technovision99. How's it going, friend? Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for coming on as well. You should give a little intro of who you are and, and what you do just to give some context. Yeah, sure. Obviously, I'm Technovision99. I'm a security engineer at Trail of Bits on the blockchain team, which means I do audits. I also do some vulnerability research and cryptography research on the side. And yeah. Perfect. So how about we start off with how you got into Trail of Bits and how you started your journey into basically Web3? Yeah, sounds good. So I tell the story like ad nauseum to everyone I meet because I find it pretty funny. I was a university student. I actually didn't have a computer science background. I majored in math. I wanted to go for my PhD in math because I spent time in university doing research. I heard of Bitcoin, obviously, but I'm like, oh, I don't really know what that is. It could be a scam, whatever. But it was in the back of my mind because we see all these wild price things. But I never like considered I want to you know, be like an auditor or oh, I want to work in crypto. Cause my entire goal was just I want to get a PhD in math. And so I was applying and I course i chose the worst time to apply which was covid time and i didn't get in anywhere which was like really sad because i spent like years of my life like trying to get in and then they're like yeah because of budget cuts we can't really take too many people so oh wow. again next year I had an existential crisis where i'm like okay what do i want to do with my life do i try again and then <laughs> i just remember like spending some time thinking about it i remember actually going on like this forum called the grad cafe and just reading some posts there and then there was one guy who was like yeah, this is my like 10th year applying and I finally got in. I got rejected for the past nine years. And I was like, do I really want to be like this? Is this what I want to do with my life? I figured, okay, I need to get a job doing something. What is something I enjoy? I don't want to be a math teacher. I realized I can't use my degree for a bunch. So I was interested in cybersecurity and stuff because my dad, he's a software engineer, but he always would talk about like cryptography and how it's cool and just like how things work. So I started actually trying to just get web 2 certification like just for the oscp but then i found i remember this was when bitcoin crashed and everything and i started looking into it a bit more because one of my professors in college i didn't really like him so that's probably why i looked into it but he was like warren buffett says bitcoin is rat poison squared so i was like okay well why does he say that and then you read the bitcoin white paper you just like learn more and more and it's like oh wait this is interesting and then you go into ethereum this is like right before deep by summer took off and it's like this is pretty cool. And then it just drew me in from the start because I guess I was pretty interested in what crypto stand for, like what you could do with it. Obviously, like everyone just thinks it's like minting JPEGs, but there are like pretty cool use cases for it, the way things work, like how they behave. So I just like got sucked in. And then people were saying, if you want to learn, you go on Twitter. So I made a Twitter. And then the first thing I saw on Twitter was there's this guy named TS11 who was like writing some weird assembly. I'm like, how the hell does this relate to like the Ethereum or whatever? So 
that's how I started getting into Solidity. I found it really cool and really fun. I think this was like back in like the optimizer meta where everyone was, you know, like I, I saved one gas by using E0 instead of GT. And then it was like pretty cool. It was just like a fun game. That's how I got into it, like crypto in general and Solidity specifically and just like blockchain. And then like from there, I was like, okay, this is interesting, but I'm not like sure what I should do like how I should make a job of it. I didn't know if I wanted to be a dev or like I wanted to be like a researcher. So I remember I was just doing this thing called build space because like back then I'd never programmed anything. Like the most I did was like writing some uh, Mathematica, which is something that like mathematicians use to generate graphs or just formulate data. So no programming experience. So I did this thing called build space, which was like introducing people like, you know, how like to develop Web3 projects. And then I started doing JavaScript stuff and I hated JavaScript. So I'm like, okay, I do not want to be like a full stack dev because this language is terrible. So then I was like, the only thing I really enjoy is I like writing Solidity. I like optimizing things. And then I figured this is actually like a complete stroke of luck because at this point I graduated university. I had a degree. I had no job. I have no prospects. My parents are like, what is this kid going to do with his life? And he's just going to be like 50 and still living with us. And I remember I'm like, okay, I need to find a job. And the day I said that, I remember scrolling through like, the build space discord and they're like there's this apprenticeship at trail of bits and like i clicked on it and yeah i've heard of trail of bits people are like oh this is like this really cool audit firm know a lot about program analysis and everything so i was like this is what i want to do i want to like work there but so i kind of just like did all the ctfs i spent time like researching vulnerabilities and honestly like that period of my life was like so much fun because i would just wake up and like do ctfs or look at crypto and it was just like so much information i learned a lot during that time managed to pass an interview and then Wow, it's been like a year, but yeah, here I am since then. Oh, wow. So you spent basically a year doing GTFs, going on Twitter, learning as much as possible. It actually wasn't a year. I don't understand how I did this myself, but I graduated university in June of 2021, right? So then for like three, four months, I was wandered around, did nothing, was just down bad pretty much. And then I remember, I think it was in like October or September, I like found that post about Trail of Bits hiring apprentices. And then from September to December, I would just wake up and just look at crypto stuff. That's it. And it was like so much fun. It just felt like playing a game. And I would just do that for like three, four months. And then I applied. I got an interview and I passed February of 2022. I've been working here. Yeah. So how was the preparation for the apprenticeship interview then? Was it pretty streamlined? Did you already know stuff or did you panic? (laughs) Dude, I was so panicked because to me, the only thing I knew was like math, right? I spent time researching iterated function systems and dynamically defined character sets. And now I'm doing something completely different. I remember looking at Twitter and the people applying for this apprenticeship, they like, oh, like I've been coding since I was like two years old. And like, you know, yeah, I have a reference from like Buddha himself. So I was just like, okay, (laughs) I'm so screwed. All I can do is just study everything. I did all the CTFs they said, like I just looked at hack. I remember every security resource or like assembly resource or just like solidity foot gun, like I could find. I was just reading through. And it's in the past like two years, something I've noticed, like there's a lot more resources. Back then it was like, I think the only things like I could really find were like the smart contract registry from Consensus, I think. Mm-hmm. There was like Christoph's blog, Mudit's blog. Oh, yeah. So, like, just mm-hmm. reading those, trying to just absorb everything I could. And I guess, luckily for me, that was enough as an interview and show that I was basically competent enough to succeed. Yeah, crazy. Uh, I'm surprised I didn't even do that <laughs> because I even did two. I think I did two interviews with them. I think I passed one, but then I just like fell off. TLDR didn't get hired. <laughs> twice (laughs) but yeah man that's super exciting especially coming out of university i'm sure you've learned like a terrific amount since then as well how was the onboarding to that oh yeah one thing like i have to give credit where credit is due i think trail bits is a fantastic company because the apprenticeship was like i mean it threw you in 
this is like the audit process. This is how we start. So not only did I learn a lot of how the big players do it, their process, I got to work with really talented people. I guess this is something maybe a lot of people don't realize because on Twitter, you only see people who have a bajillion followers, but like there are some people who just enjoy what they do and they're really talented. Just being around people who are like, they know a lot and they're really good. I remember like on some audit, there was this random Solidity foot gun that like I didn't mm -hmm. even know. I, d I didn't see anywhere. Yeah. And someone was like, yeah, this is a bug. And I'm like, how do you know this? They're really talented. I love working there. I learned a lot. And I also learned like something, I guess that's underrated, is a bit more on like the soft skill side, dealing with clients, writing reports, oh, yeah. those kinds of things. Definitely. And yeah. And I would say the apprenticeship was like a really great learning opportunity because I would consider myself a beginner. I still think I'm a beginner in some aspects, but like, that apprenticeship like really solidified what I knew and I'd learned so much from it. I was just really happy that I got to go do that. Yeah, learning from basically the best in the field in Web2 and Web3 is really quite an experience. That's something else is like, because I was like, basically I went from, you know, knowing about like esoteric math topics that no one cares about <laughs> to like only knowing about like solidity vulnerabilities and then realizing, wait, oh, like program analysis is like a huge field. Like I didn't know anything. And then people were talking about, this is how a fuzzer works. This is like how static analysis works here. Like we have static analysis tools like Slither. Do you want a walkthrough of how it works? And I'm like, yeah, okay. Sounds great. So you learn all these new things. And one thing I really do love is just learning about new things. And so it was like a dream come true for me because I got to learn about auditing. I got to learn about like all these interesting things I didn't even know existed. So I was a pretty happy guy. Yeah, and I think the math background definitely is a massive advantage in cybersecurity as well, especially auditing in DeFi. You're going to come across a lot of math. Yeah, I guess the universe does have a sense of humor because like when I was applying, I'm like, I wasted my life like learning <laughs> these stupid like math topics no one cares about. Ooh. It definitely does make comprehending a lot of these, I guess... If you audit DeFi protocols, you'll see some like really complex formula for calculating the liquidation amount. Having a math background just makes it easier. And one thing that it really does, I guess, one thing that's I think is really cool is if you just do some numerical analysis classes in college, you kind of learn like how the function looks and then you can see, oh, okay, there's going to be like edge cases here. And then sometimes there might be bugs in those edge cases. I wouldn't change a thing about how everything ended up because even though I didn't have a computer science background, having a math background definitely came in clutch in the end, which is super nice. Yeah, it sounds like it all just fell into place and it was like the perfect scenario that could have happened, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. I yeah. was, I'm just really happy about it. Seems like it, yeah. I'm similar minus the background in math. I took like a practical approach and was like, okay, what do I need? I just found interest in blockchain through investing. And then through investing, I want to get a better edge. So I, I learned to code. <laughs> and then eventually I just yeah, fell down that rabbit hole instead. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a lot of people's path because the first thing I ever did in like crypto, learning how to use my MetaMask was like obviously gambling on shit coins and losing everything. Yeah. But then like, <laughs> I wouldn't change a thing because the way I view it, that was like an initial investment to get my career started. Because then I'm like, oh, how does this exactly work? And the funny thing is, I could think recently I went back and like looked at some of those projects. I'm like, why did I ever even touch this? This code is so bad. Yeah, exactly. I think as an investor, you don't even think about the code, the underlying technology behind it. You just see the marketing and that's what dictates your decision. Yeah, investing. that's especially like hype. Hype is like the main thing. Oh, yeah. I'm of the opinion. I think like most engineers are is like marketing kind of sucks. I understand why it's necessary. But like to me, I would rather just evaluate a product on its own merit. But of course, that's not how modern day society functions. That's a side but Yeah, marketing, everything is going to the moon. And then you see their code and there's like, why is there a reentrancy here? This is pretty basic. But <laughs> it's literally just a standard ELC 20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having a math background would definitely help in informal verification as well, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, actually, it's something that I also really like about my math background is you make computer science like kind of easier to learn because a lot of the abstract concepts I think people would struggle with. If you just think from a mathematical background, like doing math, it just helps you think abstractly or think in like a certain way. For example, like when I was looking more into like type theory and stuff, it made a bit more sense. I feel like if I didn't have that background, it was a bit too abstract and I'd be like really confused. But like when you understand the definition, same with a lot of common compiler stuff, right? Like how did like an AST, how do we represent a program, an IR, like things like that. The more abstractly you can think, you can piece things together pretty fast. So I think that definitely gave me an edge. I wouldn't say I'm like very knowledgeable about it, but I got up to speed a little bit quicker than the average person would. Yeah, I, I would love to touch on like IR as well in intermediate representation. So basically before every kind of symbolic execution or setting up for fuzzing or a symbol static analysis, you would basically put it into IR, correct? Uh, it depends, actually. For example, the most basic thing you can do is just when you compile something, you obviously go from high-level language to a bytecode, and then they're typically in modern compilers that's just done through an intermediate representation because it makes program analysis and optimization a lot easier. But like, if you really wanted to, you could just basically generate a syntax tree, walk through the syntax tree, and do an analysis pass that's primitive. So there's like multiple different flavors of representing your code, so you can do like static analysis on it. I think. I'm obviously not an expert, but in the modern day, I think most advanced compilers will just use an IR. Like Solidity obviously has its own IR. In fact, Slither also has its own IR because it makes like program analysis a lot easier. And if you look at something like the Cairo programming language, which is used on StarkNet, if you look at how it worked before when the compiler was just compiling directly to like assembly and bytecode, it was pretty primitive. But when you introduce an IR, you can do a lot more optimizations. You can enforce a lot of constraints. Again, as an example in Cairo, right? When you compile down to this IR called Sierra IR, it, the Sierra IR basically has a type system that lets you enforce the constraints of the programming language you want. There are different flavors of representing a program using the intermediate representation is probably like the most common now because it just allows for easier optimization and analysis passes than just compiling directly to bytecode. Sure. And then through that, then you can do your program analysis, basically. Yeah. It's typically like common that you can leverage the IR to build program analysis because you can obviously like just walk across the AST and do analysis, but like over the IR, I think it's called typically the IR is done using something called like SSA, which is static single assignment. It makes like every variable immutable and doing that like really lets you have like more fine grained like analysis techniques you can do for like complex, like complicated patterns. Yeah. So SSA is basically creating a new value for each basically step within the bytecode. So let's say like you have variable a b and then you have variable c which is add would be c er, yeah so a b c and then i guess if you want to add something else let's say multiply by this then that would be like another step in the alphabet and it just keeps going basically so the yeah one. exactly yeah yeah I, I remember someone told me about that in the reverse engineering group chat i tried it but it didn't really help me when i was doing my kind of stuff my my fuzzing I just did the straight read from bytecode. <laughs> For fuzzing, it's a bit different because static analysis, you don't actually run the program, right? So having some sort of representation would be like, would make it a lot easier. I think for there's different kinds of fuzzing, obviously, right? But for fuzzing, since it's dynamic, you can actually run the source code. You don't really need intermediate representation unless you're, I'm not an expert on this, obviously, but I'm sure someone from my company will hold out. But if you're doing, I think, Graybox or black box fuzzing, maybe having an IR would be better. But yeah, I'm not too sure about that. It gets a bit complicated when you're using embedded or yeah, embedded dynamic basically variables. So for example, using zero x zero zero call data, then using that call data value for the next call data offset 
like when you start nesting it, it just becomes so much more co- complex and very hard to predetermine without symbolic execution, I think, or just like fuzzing in general. Um, but I would like to ask, like, how was the kind of auditing process different in a, a big company compared to something like a public contest? Uh, so, like, I guess this is a big point of contention because everyone is talking about audits contests versus firms, and then you have everyone on Twitter just saying, oh, like, our firm, like, just hire people from, like, <laughs> just do yeah. Coderina or something. And I think, obviously, it makes sense because Coderina, there's a hundred people looking at your code, and as a security engineer, you have just the people at the company. But wh- one thing I think that is, like, a bit different with our auditing process in specific is, like, we use our tools and, like, we give, like, higher-level recommendations to the clients, so, like, because I guess I used to do some contests sometimes, um, but to that, it was just, oh, I'm just going to find a bug. Here it is, submit my report, and then I'm done. But in you have, I guess, a deeper relationship with the client. Typically, you're like, oh, this is something that like could go wrong. Do you want to consider redesigning it in this way because it would be more secure? Or downstream, like there could be like these economic consequences. It's not like there are vulnerabilities per se, but just like get like helping people think in a more security-focused way. Because when you're a developer, I feel like, you just care about making the product work, right? From our perspective, we're just trying to investigate every way it can go wrong. Not even, oh, this is a critical loss of funds, right? It just, would people be incentivized economically to behave in this way? And could this lead to a certain situation? Or designing something like this could be a bit error prone down the line. We would recommend against that. So it's like having that sort of deeper relationship with the client. And another thing I think we do is we use, I guess we, we use our tools. We, for longer aud- audits, we'll write dedicated buzzing harnesses for them and we'll help them set it up on their end. They can learn like, how should we keep testing our code and refactoring? I think the value proposition is a little bit different with an audit contest versus going to a firm and especially a firm like ours that has experience with program analysis and stuff. I think there's two big trade-offs with going with a firm and an established company, but it definitely seems like you're paying a premium for basically a firm. But having said what you said, it definitely seems like a good investment as well, you know, that you're basically giving them architecture advice for long-term success instead of just short-term, okay, does this work? It works, all right, release it. It's more improving. I think that's like kind of a big thing because the company's motto is we don't fix bugs, we fix software, right? Our goal isn't just to be like, you have these bugs. It's like, how can we help you getting better development practices or like testing practices? It's like these kinds of bugs don't even happen in the first place because like just like throwing, not to throw shade, but there have been like, some projects that just got like a bunch of audits and they're like the audit reports is lit up every time and then they're just like okay we'll redesign and get another audit but then there are really subtle bugs that like occur and it's not like everyone can find everything all the time so we just think that like having people have like just secure development flow which is a better idea like long term obviously like you still need an audit you still need like other people to look at your code but yeah like we would like just to raise the bar of security and secure development practices. And it doesn't hinder the amount of clients you attract as well, because if this was really something that was detrimental to your company's success, then it wouldn't be done. But it's not. It's actually doing the opposite. It would bring a lot more people to come in because it's not actually eliminating you as a service. You're still helping people improve their code and securing it at the same time. So it's really like one stone and two birds situation. Exactly. Instead of the opposite. Even though you're helping them basically eradicate you, <laughs> it's still something they want and they keep coming back. Otherwise, it wouldn't be working. <laughs> you wouldn't be up. That's a good way to put it. And I think it's also important, you touched on this before the podcast, that you're given time to basically learn and choose what you want to do for a period of time. Elaborate on that for a bit. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Cause this is like probably one of the parts of the company I like the most. I mean, in between audits, we typically have some time called IRAD, which is internal research and development. So like you can go and I'm not going to say you can do whatever you want. Cause like, I'm not just going to slack off with the beer in my hands during IRAD. I have to learn something, but you can just like go in any direction you please. Cause the world of blockchain is like super big, right? There's, you know, like different architectures for like nodes, there's advanced cryptography being used. Obviously we develop tools on the side so you can just, oh, okay, I guess this week, like on IRAD, I want to contribute to this tool. So like help make some PRs here, or there is something interesting in this audit that like, I want to, you know, give a presentation on so like everyone will know how it works. And so we can do that. And it's just like really free form and lets me explore my own interests. I've been doing a lot of like cryptography research because I find zero knowledge groups really interesting. And so we actually have a crypto team too. And like during my IRAD, if I want to like shadow a crypto audit, I would be able to do that. Yeah, it sounds incredible. Like a dream company sounds like. Because if someone's just working their whole life and they don't really have a lot of time outside of work to basically study what they want, and they're going to burn out or get incredibly demotivated. So I think this is a terrific way to expand the employee skills and allow them to collaborate even further and learn from other people, not even in their kind of section or sector. Yeah, that's something I like really plus 100 to that because I don't think I'll ever get burnt out. It's been a year and I just still want to like keep working, keep learning because I can go in any direction I please. Like after an audit, like let's say, you know, oh, okay, I've been looking at like decode for like a month. I want to investigate Cairo or I want to investigate like how Cosmos works. Okay, I can go do that. It's just nice and just chilling. Everyone at my company is like super great. I can only really say positive things. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> and talking about cryptography, how did you get into that? And what are you doing in that sense? Yeah, I'm going to be glad to share this because uh, it's been super fun. So obviously I have a math background. One thing, I guess I said I wouldn't change anything. One thing I would change is I'd probably go more into the cryptography side because I did more on the algebraic side, like particularly with regards to the complex analysis and stuff. So I've had a math background, but cryptography was interesting. And then cryptography kind of underpinned everything. Like we're communicating through like TLS, right? So there's encryption there. When you upload something, it's encrypted. Your credit card is encrypted. It's figuring out how these works. And then in blockchain specifically, if you're like ZK everything, what is ZK? Like figuring out these things are just really cool. And again, since I have some spare time, I can look into that. And mm -hmm. we have a crypto team. So like I always ask them questions, probably too many questions. <laughs> I get to just learn about those things on the side too. Have you ever gone into ZK, like deep dive? Oh yeah. I wouldn't say like I'm an expert or anything, but I've definitely been using some of my like time to research, I guess the modern like IVC systems, like Planckish arithmetization, things like that, the new latest and greatest. So it gets like pretty complicated, I think. I think I'm still like a noob because like Nova and all those like statement folding schemes have been broken and I was trying to read it. I'm like, okay, why exactly? I'll probably have to read it like 10 more times to understand, but yeah, it's like, super interesting. I guess I've just been looking into like this traditional polynomial commitment schemes, Peterson commitments, like IPA, like KZG, whatever. And then I guess Splunk or like the new proving systems. There have been so many proving systems, it's hard to keep track of all of them. But like, I think I understand how like Turbo Plonk, Ultra Plonk work, yeah. custom gates and things like that. And just understand ZK EVM architecture, like barely, not like super well, but it's definitely something interesting to keep looking into. Yeah, it's such a complex topic as well, the whole cryptography field. And then I think the only thing that really emerges in blockchain is just DK. And that's what's pilling everyone into cryptography. Maybe. I guess when I heard of it, I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. You can prove like ZK everything. We're going to prove like something without revealing it. And then naturally you're like, okay, but like how though? And then, you know, it's like dive through the map and you look at it and then you're like, oh, wow, this is super cool. It does get like technical, but I'm, yeah, I'm really happy I have a math background because I feel like because I spent time at school like studying things like like pairings or like some like algebraic geometry like concepts. It's not like 
super hard to dive into. Whereas if I didn't, I'd probably spend, I'd have to spend a lot of time like getting up to speed on the math first. Yeah. Let's say someone did want to get into ZK from scratch and didn't have any experience in math or cryptography. What kind of like pathway do you think they would take, they should take? The great thing is that I've recently noticed is I don't think you actually need to like, you don't need to have a degree in math. I think like this broadly applies to anything because we have access to the internet, right? All the education is there. I think I would just recommend like picking up like just picking up a basic cryptography course, like uh, Crypto One on Coursera is really good. Like I went through that. And then if there's any concepts you don't understand, but you can just look it up or you can just find like a number, yeah, a number theory, like primer. There's like a whole bunch of like prime work. You don't need to be an expert in like group theory or like group actions or know like the silo theorems or whatever. You just need to know this is a group. This is how it behaves. Okay. How do we use them in cryptography? This is like a pairing. This is an elliptic curve, right? You don't need to be like an expert in like the exact nitty gritty details on like actual math but you just need a broad idea and that can just be like supplemented just through google or like various primers that people put out bless you yeah yeah i think the cryptography scene is definitely an interesting thing to witness even though i don't understand it fully i think it's definitely neither do i brother it's okay <laughs> yeah it's quite some time to, to actually appreciate the underlying tech and what people are doing with it but it's definitely the future in terms of like private data being publicly. <laughs> the things that you can do are really cool, especially if you look at like the ways like the cryptography research that's coming out with, you know, like just zero knowledge stuff or like just succinct proofs in general. And then even like statement, like recursive proofs. And then also I think like this other like research in cryptography, like FHE is super like fully holomorphic encryption is super interesting. And then, yeah, I guess like cryptography is like really cool and there's a lot of like really cool things you can do with it. I'm just happy that the blockchain space is spearheading a lot of in innovation, especially in the zero knowledge space. Yeah, blockchain is quite quite fascinating because it hits a lot of different fields in one kind of like area. You got basically the business side where you're building a company, you can do all that normal stuff, but then you're also hitting economics. How, how do you manage basically money? How do you make it worth something, inherently worth something? Do you learn math? You learn so many things, man. Yeah, it's really like interdisciplinary. That's something that I also found like super cool. Today's like computer science, there's programming, there's game theory, there's, ec there's economics, there's cryptography. Like it just does touched on so many different areas. One thing that's really cool is like people, you know, who specialize in like all sorts of areas. Like there's like a bunch of economics professors. I think they claim to be economics professors on Twitter, at least who like, you know, analyze like DeFi protocols and ask like specific interesting questions, like, and then try to formulate it economically. There's people who, you know, obviously like work on the coding and development side. It's just so fascinating because there's so many different things. I wish I had enough time to learn it all, but that'd probably take several lifetimes. Oh yeah, definitely. That's why I got to go into your niches. And I think even just explore like something you're doing now you can branch off into multiple things after you've learned something about that or maybe it's just from talking to someone about that certain topic then they mention something you're like oh this is interesting let's kind of dive into this in my spare time then it's definitely like fun to just go down rabbit holes but like it's also really easy to spread yourself too thin and you're just like you don't have like much in-depth knowledge into something but you just know like a bunch about random things so it's like a trade-off and you need to like kind of balance it to make sure you're not just like, oh, I know about this and I don't really understand because especially as a security researcher, your job is the way I view it is like your job is to be able to understand these things like to an extreme level. So like just having a surface level knowledge in a lot of things doesn't really help you. So sometimes you just have to be like, okay, I don't really care about this. So like I'm not an expert in like nodes or anything. Obviously I know the basics, right? But like, for example, like in really detailed, I don't know like the get code in detail i understand like basics of how it works but like if you ask me something in specifics i won't know how nodes should be designed again have the basic idea cosmos kind of know how it works the very basic because i don't have the time to like actually sit there and look into everything 
Yeah. You got to find something that you're really passionate about, something that interests you because that's how you stay consistent and eventually get to the master level or get to a level where you're quite comprehensive. You comprehend the field in a very deep way. And I think from that, you're able to innovate and identify what's missing in the area. And then it, that's where it gets interesting, in my opinion. Sure, learning and the journey getting to that kind of state is, is also really fun. But if you don't find interest in that kind of that journey, then the end game is just going to get harder <laughs> and you're not going to enjoy it because that's when you have no resources and you have to basically think of new ways and new primitives to invent. <laughs> you you got to pave the way for the future. Yeah, I guess it does relate to automating because I guess when I started out, you spend your time reading other people's reports and, oh, okay, that makes sense. But like having to figure it out yourself is a whole nother ballgame. It's, oh, like, could this be problematic? I don't know. Like, it's not like pattern matching, right? You have to think differently. I do think it's like after a certain point, you there's no like guide, you know, on like how to be like really good. You just have to discover how you do it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe talk to someone that is really good and see how they progress over their lifetime or their career. I think that's also a very great way. But obviously, that's also very hard to do because you have to grab a hold of them. And then you have to try and make questions to extract information in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's definitely true. But one thing I will say that I really like about, I guess, just like the blockchain space in general is like, it's pretty like open. You find someone's Twitter, like you DM them, like sure, they'll be busy. In my experience, like most people, they reply. It's not like some like elite club or anything. It's, oh, like I'm curious about this. Yeah, sure. I can help you explain it. I have some time. It's just very open and people are very receptive, just like helping each other out. Yeah, you can just DM a founder or like a really high-end dev on Twitter and they'll just respond. Most times, not. Most times they would instead of just ignoring you. And if they are ignoring you, they're probably just like deep focused learning or working something around that. Or they just might not see it because maybe they have a bunch of people. For example, today, I just retweeted stuff on a Symbolic Execution. He's a, a lead security researcher at Spearbit. He's, he's a formal verification lead at Ethereum Foundation. <laughs> and yeah, just from that, I entered his DMs. Now we're following each other. It's really quite easy <laughs> and surprising as well. Yeah, It wouldn't be like this in basically Web2 where you have a really high up you think really high up in like a corporate skyrise tower and you're like how the fuck am i gonna message them <laughs> how am i gonna get in contact yeah with them? like no one is messaging the top amazon developer for i guess tips on microservices or whatever yeah exactly and then in twitter you can just message anyone they'll be like yup here you go let me help you out let's jump on a call but you've also done a, a fair bit of auditing as well right so i guess what do you think makes trailer bit so good at auditing and what's established their brand in a way I think like we're obviously like pretty good auditors in our own right. Sometimes we miss bugs, things happen, but like I think in general, like we just have people, you know, who have traditional experience in like web two. And so like carrying that over, we can leverage those people. But as I said before, I think our main selling point is honestly just like our tools and like secure development practices. Cause there are a lot of as you can see on like the internet, there are a lot of like really talented auditors out there. And I think we're also some of them. Some I know like there are some of my coworkers who don't have bitter or anything. They're just they just hunker down and work, but they're like seriously some of the smartest people like I've ever met. And and it's just amazing like how much they know so i think i think we just have a lot of like industry experience and security in general and we kind of leverage that i wouldn't say there's like some secret like auditing formula or something that we have we have a lot of experience we leverage it and we're unique in that we build tools and we like help people have more secure development practices if that makes sense yeah for sure uh, definitely being around people that are smarter than you and have expertise in different fields you can all combine and share experience and knowledge and kind of boost everybody to get people up to a higher level. So it definitely makes sense that you curate a bunch of knowledge from just sharing within the team. But I also think another interesting thing is your tools. You don't actually close source them, you, you open source them. 
Which is interesting because you would think that a company would basically close source all their IP and use it for financial gain. If someone wants to have an order, they can get like a special deal where they use all your in-house tools. But it's not the case with trailer bits, is it? It's all open source. That's also something I really like is Slither just has, I think it's just like an AGPL license, right? So anyone can use it and just build on top of it. Because I, I genuinely think like company just wants to help the ecosystem get better, right? Because like we obviously could have made fuzzing or anything as like a SaaS, but like it's better if your average developer just learns how to use Echidna and they can write their own buzz, like fuzz harnesses. That way, the, the bar for security just goes up higher and the ecosystem is just better as a whole. So that's something I really do admire from like the people at my company who are just making a lot of some of our tools open source. And I think that also gives a lot of exposure and a lot of developers having eyes on these tools to make them even better. And that's also another way of onboarding good talent as well. Through open source contributions, you can see who's good, who's not, who's making a lot of commitments. Then you're like, okay, this this person is contributing a lot. Let's let's try and get in touch with them so they can do it for us. Actually, a lot of people who are hired on the blockchain team, I guess they just started by making a lot of contributions to Slither and then like, from there, you, you talk to them and you're like, oh, wow, these people are like really intelligent. And another thing that I really like about open source is like there are a lot of people outside the company who still contribute to like Slither too. So it makes it like really nice just like for everyone to kind of just help build a tool that everyone can use. And it's just super awesome because the industry goes better, like our tool gets better. And so mm-hmm. yeah. Boundary as well, like it's such a staple in blockchain development and basically the team just poaches like top contributors to like reef forge all that kind of stuff so it is really like a great tool to get your great gateway to get your name out there and kickstart your career or even just like switch to like a more experienced team something that's more advanced because sliver is also like a staple in security as well it's always referenced whenever you speak about web free security tooling yeah and that's another thing i'd like to touch on is yeah you know, like i feel like especially in like web3 or just maybe i'm not sure how it is in computer science in general but like web3 specifically it's you don't need a degree or like a resume or anything it's like you make a pr like that shows that you know what you're doing right so in my opinion it feels more like merit-based than oh what are your qualifications did you like sleep through all your classes and then like somehow ace the test because you copied off someone and then you have a degree i, I did go through college and everything i'm not gonna say it's completely useless i do think in the modern day especially in like our field. It's if you want to learn something, you have like all the resources on the internet, which is really great. And you can just start contributing and then eventually like you'll learn and learn and then you'll be picked up by someone or you can just do, you'll just gain a lot of experience that way. It's not like, you know, chemistry, right? There's no like equipment costs. If you have an internet connection in the laptop, you should be more or less fine. Yeah, exactly. You don't need specific formulas and learning all these equations to basically do something. Don't have to get them correct every single time for it to work. You basically just trial and error in this field. Um, yeah, and through through trial and error, pretty rapidly because of that, I think you learn what works and what doesn't really fast. Yeah, and when you do it practically, you make connections, much more meaningful connections than just reading some words on a textbook. Let's say you read an article online in something related to, let's say, form of verification, then you want to implement it. Then you're going to make that uh, connection much quicker than if you're just doing like a test, like a quiz, and reading a, a theory book. And it's something that you're also very passionate about as well, because you wouldn't be learning it if you didn't want to pursue it. Maybe there is some other cases if you're in a job and you have to learn it. Yeah, but- that's another thing too, is I feel like everyone who works here, like they just got in this space because they genuinely enjoy it, right? Like, yeah, sure. Some people are like, oh, I just want a lot of money or whatever. Everyone just like makes open source contributions. You can tell they like actually like what they're doing, right? No one is just going to contribute in their free time because they have to. 
Yeah, it's more like a passion, like a burning desire. Oh, this is super interesting. Let me see what I can do. Let me see how I can help basically elevate this tool that I find super cool to the next level and be like a core, basically, reason why it's getting there. And that, yeah, it establishes your name, just like how public contests show your skills through reports and statistics. It's the same with open source contributions. It, it is like a global leaderboard in a way. And the teams that host it are looking at that leaderboard. And even other teams, if they want to poke someone that's working on the foundry thing, they're like, oh, I see you have a lot of knowledge in this. And you want to come slide in and work with us. On the auditing side, how do you guys like write reports that are different to like public contests as well? This is another thing I guess that I should probably touch on because the main deliverable obviously is like the final report, right? And if you do a contest, you have a POC, like you write it up, you write, this is the issue, check, you give like a brief, like two word description. And then it's a lot of our reports, especially like the public facing ones is you have to like figure out like how to word it correctly. Like, are you conveying things like properly? You have to give like good examples. You have to give them like recommendations for short-term and long-term things. And you have to like figure out when it would be exploited. I think the report writing is like a big part of like how we're different because not obviously unlike C4 or Sherlock, you don't have to write an in-detail report. And then another thing is when it comes to writing a report is you have to be like, since other people are going to see it, it's like the main deliverable. You have to like make sure the grammar is correct, make sure like the punctuation is correct and make sure like everything sounds well, flows smoothly, explains the problem. And yeah, so I guess report writing is something that I think is pretty different. It's almost like a skill in itself because like you can write, oh, I understand what the issue is. Can you explain the issue to someone? Because the person who reads the report, it's not even be like the developers or anything. It might be like the CEO or something. He knows what solidity is, but he doesn't understand. Can you convey the issue to him? It does take some skill to like explain yourself eloquently and do that. Yeah, convey the issue in a concise and detailed way. So where someone that's not even a developer can understand, because that's going to be more, more often not the case. It's usually the higher-ups, not the developers, that are making all these deals and trying to fix their code. Yeah, because the developers, they wrote the code base. If you explain something, most of them are pretty, like, they'll understand what you're talking about unless it's super complicated. Can you convey the same thing to someone who they barely understand how the code works? Yeah, and then that's who you're trying to retain because they have basically all the connections to these developers and they'll more often than not have more work for you. And you want to establish these connections as well so you can grow your network, et cetera, keep people in retainer all that kind of stuff. So I guess if you were to like prepare getting back, getting into trailer bits again, what do you think you would do next time? I know that you got it on the first try, <laughs> but uh, let's say like if you, were there anything, was there anything that you saw that you weren't really prepared for or were you kind of like overall? Uh, older? I guess one thing I would do, I guess if I had to do it over again is I would probably just get my feet wet more with contests because I think that's a much faster learning opportunity. Like I didn't do many contests like because I was just like, oh, dude, like these people are making like money. There's no way I'm good enough for that yet. I didn't think you just get your feet wet in them. Another thing I would recommend is like contributing to like our tools, seeing how they work and just like understanding program analysis a bit more. Because when you're hired, you're not just like there to like audit all the time and find bugs, right? Like you also like have to like learn a bit more about program analysis and how to contribute to our tools, how to like make our tools better. Yeah, besides that, I would just recommend keeping up to date with the latest hacks, like understanding the quirks of the EVM, how it works. If you do those three things and you're like pretty good, yeah, well, definitely want to be in touch with you. Yeah, for sure. And speaking on your experience in Trailer Bits, if you weren't a part of Trailer Bits and you wanted to learn all of the stuff you've learned now, what do you think is the strategy to touch on all of this stuff and go as deep as you have in Trailer Bits without the mentorship? 
That's a good question, actually. I've probably been helped more times than I can count by the people at my company because they're all super nice and friendly and really helpful. Just, But I think I wanted to get up to speed. The nice thing is there's a lot of online resources for every, everything. It's not like there's just some internal magic book that we have that like explains everything. It's, there's a lot of resources online. I would just, in terms of getting up to speed on all my knowledge, I would just go through all the CTFs again, then just read past audit reports from everyone, see what kind of issues, do you code or, you know, you know the standard advice that's given to everyone. And then... Because I think that generally will take you like 80 to 90% of the way. And then I would just go through like GitHub, go on like Slither, Echidna, like kind of understand a bit of how they work. Echidna is written in Haskell, so it might be a bit like more difficult, but Slither is in Python, right? So uh, you'd look through it, understand how, how it works, and then just try to like write your own detector, see if you can do that. Because we actually have a lot of like open source contributions for detectors. So I would just get my feet wet, like just go and try do all the CTFs. In terms of program analysis, I think it's a bit more tricky because I obviously have leading experts in the world who will I'll just be like, I don't get this. Explain it to me, please. And they're like, yeah, of course. I think it just take more time, but you can go through like some books. I'm pretty sure there's some open source books on like static analysis. There's some courses online for like compiler theories. If you want to learn a bit more about like how compilers work, the different optimizations they do or lexers, parsers, et cetera. I think you can learn online. I'm just really grateful. My learning was like sped up because I have all these great people around yeah. me. Have you learned much about symbolic execution at all? A bit. I guess like on audits, formal verification, like symbolic execution is pretty cumbersome because of the state explosion. So like we don't really use it that much. I remember, I think it was, I'm not sure who said this, but it might've been like someone from runtime verification, which specializes in like formal verification. But to do formal verification, it should take around nine times the length of time it took for you to develop something. So like on a four week audit, it's like ridiculous to you know assume that we can use like solvers and stuff like that or generate constraints and things like that but yeah i am a bit familiar with it i wouldn't say i'm very knowledgeable because i always compare myself to people at my company who are like world-class experts so, yeah <laughs> i wouldn't say i know that much yeah i think you're definitely in the perfect environment to basically accelerate your career as fast as humanly possible right you're around world-class expert you're doing kind of everything that's relating to cybersecurity. even got your interests of cryptography yeah, it just sounds like the perfect world. I wonder if you build any tools from scratch there as well, or is it just contribute to what's already existing? We definitely are building some things from scratch. I can't say too much because obviously they're like, we're just building them from scratch. But yeah, it's not like we just like, we only like modify our existing tools. We're definitely like looking for, I guess, like making new stuff. And that's really cool because you get to like work with a lot of different people from the company, like different divisions in work, like building these things. So you get to see like how like a lot more experienced people would do things. And yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how they approach the quote-unquote startup. Each one of them could be considered a startup as well. You turn them into a SaaS or something. So yeah, it'd be very interesting to see like their design patterns and how they basically build an architecture from scratch. I think it's very valuable to see that from like world-class developers compared to just going at it by yourself until it works, hitting a roadblock, then going again. <laughs> Yeah, that's something else. Like, if I had to like code everything by myself, I would still just be writing like really shitty JavaScript programs. But like, I have all these people around me. You know, I think I've grown a lot better. I've just become leaps and bounds better at coding because I like started with no experience around almost a year and a half ago, and now like I would say I'm pretty comfortable writing code in almost any programming language. Okay, okay, not like Haskell or like Erlang or functional stuff. Like in, in common programming languages, Rust, Go, like TypeScript, whatever. Yeah, I was like, damn, Haskell. <laughs> this guy's a master. Super interesting. Is there anything you want to talk about as well? That's a great question, dude. Just interested in a whole bunch of stuff, doing cool things. Like I think in terms of our audits, we audit a lot more general stuff. So like we have expertise in different areas. Like in Katarina Sherlock, you know, is just like strictly like solidity stuff, right? More or less. 
but like we do node audit, all chain audit. So we kind of have like a lot of different experience in a lot of things. So yeah, it's not just like we know only Solidity, like we do all sorts of audits. Do you do bytecode audits? Well, we've done projects that are like pretty much written in assembly, pure assembly. We have like familiarity with that. We understand the EVM really well because as I said before, Slither has its own IR, right? To build something like that, you do need to understand this is how Solidity works at a very fine level. Yeah, yeah. I think bytecode audits are very interesting. Like I, I recently started that and it is quite fun. The surface level isn't as big, but it is quite it's quite funny how simple like some attack vectors occur. Yeah, weird. Yule is notorious for just being like having so many foot guns. We definitely don't recommend people using things in assembly all the time because it's really easy to shoot yourself in the foot if you don't know what you're doing. And even like experienced people, you know, they like miss a return data size check or something and then it just screws up everything or they don't clean. Like I think Solidity has like a lot of quirks, especially when you go down to the assembly level. Like for example, in Solidity, everything is just like a 256-bit word, right? Even if you do operations on things that aren't 256 bits, like the dirty bits aren't cleaned. You have to clean them yourself. You know, there's just so many more things you have to know. Uh, like you also have to do like contract existence check because that high level solidity will take care of that for you. There's just like going down to the low level, like you need to know what you're doing like very well. And it's, there's a lot of flickens. So we'd recommend against that unless you like really need the gas savings. Yeah, for sure. It gets quite complex. You have to basically manage the whole state, basically memory and the stack all in your mind. And it's like one opcode can completely ruin the whole sequence and screw everything up. And I think the tooling isn't actually that good either for that kind of stuff as well. So it becomes even harder. But yeah, man, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and hopefully you have as well. I think this was your first kind of like public speaking thing you've done. Is that yeah, dude, I really enjoyed this. Oh man, yeah, so did I. I'm super thankful you came on and I'm sure a lot of people would definitely get a lot of insight from this. And even you looking back at this after some time in your career, you'll be like, damn, I, I really come a long way. I'll probably just cringe at my voice because every time I hear my voice on a recording, it makes my ears bleed. But yeah, I'll definitely flick. It should be interesting to look at this a couple of months later down the line. Yeah, for sure. Thanks very much for coming on. And if anyone in the audience wants to recommend someone to come on, just DM me on Twitter at the Gachi or at Scraping Bits or give me an email at scrapingbits at gmail.com and we'll look into it. But other than that, thank you so much, Technovision, for coming on and I hope you have a lovely day. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you for having me.